You're listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and triple-decker ego extravaganzas. This is Season 3, Episode 3, Stranger Things, This is My Son, the Beloved. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. What's up, Adam? Hey, Carrie. We have the internet. The show that we watched for this uh, episode did not have the internet, which is why they're using radios and payphones. Yeah. Yep. And it's amazing. No one has a cell phone. They're just running around blind, have no idea how to contact each other. I was, uh, so the show begins in 1983, which is the year I was born. Well, um, Yeah. I know that we have, if the season four happens, maybe it will, will happen in a year that you were alive. I we'll don't know see. what year that would be. Well, I know what year I was born, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I don't know what year they're in in season three. What was that? Were you born in 89? Yeah, I was born in 89. 89. Yeah. So it might, maybe they'll jump to the fall of the Berlin wall and, and all that. And the kids will be in high school and, and, uh, I guess they'll be, watch, the delay, they'll be watching gonna... Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, lucky kids. But with the delay in filming, they're going to have to explain the age up somehow. So we're yeah, talking yeah. Stranger yeah, Things stranger today. Things. Yeah. Which, uh, how many years ago did the first season come out? Ooh, I didn't research that. Four? It's been a couple. Um, it was definitely the thing that sold me on Netflix streaming. Absolutely. Because right? I had Netflix back when it was actually, you know, DVDs they sent you in the mail. Whoa, you are old. I am old. That's how I watched. That's how I watched The Sopranos and other shows. Throwback time. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but but yeah, Stranger Things came out, and I watched the whole show by myself, Mm. and then I had to convince my wife Leah to watch it because she does not like to watch things that have children in peril. Oh, right. Which That's is one of understandable. The she, yeah. Yep. Um, so I had to basically spoil the first season for her in order to get her to watch it. And then she watched it and, and just loved it. And, Spoiler alert. The yeah. kids end up being okay, except for yeah. Barb. <laughs> oh, Barb. Barb. Justice for Barb. And then season two came out around Halloween time, and this, which is what's taking place in the actual season. Season four, three being around 4th of July, and it's a, like a summertime. I love that each season had its kind of own feel to it because of the seasonality and there's a lot of nostalgia in it i think just in the way the music is is filmed though the opening not the credits yeah the credits the opening credits title sequence kind of has that grainy you know old vhs tape feel to it um yeah yep, with the synth just, music beneath it yeah and it's so well crafted and beautifully acted by a lot of young actors oh yeah and there's a lot of interesting relationships that just keep getting more complicated as time goes on as the kids age they go through all these experiences together there's new characters added into the cast mm-hmm. and the relationships between the generations the you know adult generation and the kid generation get very complicated and that's a little bit what we're going to be talking about today yeah, we're going to look at Stranger Things from a particular lens, which is the relationships that the adult characters have with the children or youth characters in the show, and um, which is why we call this episode, This is My Son, the Beloved. And, and you'll understand why in a second, because Carrie is going to read us a scripture quotation from the Gospel of Matthew. While Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up and do not be afraid. And our quote from Nerd Canon comes from the first season of Stranger Things. Joyce, played perfectly by Winona Ryder, is speaking to Hopper. Uh, after putting up all the Christmas tree lights in the house. And she says, maybe I am a mess. Maybe I am crazy. Maybe I am out of my mind, but God help me. I will keep these lights up until the day I die. If there's a chance that Will's still out there. So let's start with Joyce Byers, because I think in this initial, it's just in the pilot, it sets up two very different kind of home environments that give you different expectations for how these parents will behave. Um, I at least wa- rewatching this saw the Wheelers, the, you know, Mike, the one of the main characters family as being this typical, solid, dependable 
family. They got three kids, a dad who works all day and a stay at home mom. A two and a half kids specifically because Holly's so small. So it's like, it's not it's a like, half child. Well, you know what I mean? Like, like okay. literally two. like 2.5 children was the, yeah. There's know, no the dog named spot typical, or a picket fence yeah. though. <laughs> there will be a, there will be a Reagan Bush sign in the second season. Exactly. And, and they're you know, at the end of the cul-de-sac in this big suburban house. And then compared to that, there's the buyers that live. It's a, Joyce is a single mother. She's got a teenage son and then her preteen son, Will, who disappears. And they live further outside of town in a bit more of a rural area. Yeah, um, and off of Yeah, off of Mirkwood, out, out really far away. And that kind of sets up this foil between the two. And you the expectations being that the Wheelers are this you know, nor- normal, dependable family and the buyers are different. There's, you know, something kind of wrong with them as, as Joyce is mentioning to Hopper when Will has disappeared that, you know, the kids make fun of Will. He's got, doesn't have the right clothes. Um, his father thought, you know, his father said some terrible things about him. So there's just something not quite normal about that family. Yeah. The, the father, Lonnie, who is awful, is just awful and, and uses uses uh, Will's sexual identity as a punching bag, basically. Lonnie's a trash bag, but Joyce, the single mother, is depicted as being very frazzled and on edge. You see that in the very first scene after she's wondering where Will is and she's running around the house looking for her keys. Uh, Jonathan's trying to get breakfast on the table. And um, I think that premise, that early scenes of Joyce kind of sets up the idea of Joyce's, to use the word that would probably be used in the town, kind of crazy. Um, and no one's going to believe her. She is also set up as somebody who's not very successful. She works at the pharmacy, She, but she's a very faithful worker. She's worked there 10 years and never missed a shift and worked holidays. And so you wonder, setting up that at that very beginning, is she very doting on her children are they latchkey kids like so many were in the 1980s um uh not me i was too little um <laughs> i was a baby in this this season of stranger things thankfully not left alone for not long periods alone, of no. time um but did uh so jonathan isn't there when will gets home and even if jonathan had been there they probably both would have gotten <laughs> sucked into the upside down. So Joyce comes home and they don't, they don't know where Will is and she is freaking out, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so we see that the initial reaction to her and the house, which is a little bit in disarray, um, we're set up to, to think that she is not a, you know, a like loving, a dependable. caring, dependable parent. And whereas Mike's, mom and and you know is because she can she's cooking and she's there's breakfast on the table and and everything is clean and all of that well and you and you see that like people don't trust joyce in the way that the um the police receptionist says joyce byers can't find her son this morning not will byers is missing no joyce can't find him like she just misplaced her son and, oh i didn't and catch he, that that's good yeah it, 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 it caught me i think the first time because it's like you really want this woman to not be dependable and not, you know, it's implied that she probably doesn't know her children that well, that she's expecting her older son to be, you know, home taking care of Will when she's at work. And that um, the fact that he took an extra shift to get more cash, maybe puts a, puts her on, you know, as, as the parent who's not able to get enough money to, to keep them uh, well. She can't support her family. She can't support her family. That's right. Um, At the end of the pilot, um, Joyce and Jonathan have a heart to heart where Joyce says, I know I haven't been there for you. I've been working so hard and I just feel bad. I don't even barely know what's going on with you. I'm sorry about that. So we do see that, that at least from her perspective, she hasn't been present. And it's crystallized in the fact that now Will has disappeared, that she hasn't been around. And, and she now she um, ha- is ashamed of herself and she's, she's blaming herself that if she had been there, then maybe she would have been able to save Will and, and so forth. And I think that first, that and by the end of that episode one, though, they are starting to unravel that picture that was portrayed by showing her as this parent who's willing to level with her teenage son, not to act like she's always correct, but say, I'm sorry, I haven't been there. I don't even know what's going on with you. And, and interactions in the flashbacks with Will, you see she's a very caring mother who really knows her son compared to the 
particulars where, you know, Karen, the, the mom's literally called Karen. I'm not just calling her that stereotype. <laughs> Karen Wheeler, you know, wants to interrupt the campaign. The kids have been running in the basement all day, the D&D game they're playing. And she doesn't understand that the work that goes into building a D&D campaign, she just knows it's quarter after whatever, out eight o'clock maybe. <clears throat> and it's, t- it's time to, to wrap it up. Whereas Joyce is shown to understand her son deeply. And, and later on, we see she proves that, you know, a drawing that they find that was done by, it ends up being done by Eleven was not done by Will because Will's a talented artist. She, she recognizes that's not, he's much more talented than that. Or she- With his green, he, green fireballs. Yes. She remembers, um, she remembers the password to get into Castle Byers as being Radagast, you know, the wizard from Lord of the Rings. Um, she, even though she has no interest in those- The third fantasy, tier wizard from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but she, she remembers it after stumbling over it a bit, but- um, She'll even later say, I know it was his breathing when she hears Will on the phone through the upside down. She's, she recognizes the breathing of her child. And and at the end of that pilot episode, uh, Jonathan breaks down about not being home for Will. Joyce comforts him. And then she says, he's close. I feel it in my heart. Mm-hmm. You have to trust me on this this one. To, to Jonathan. Uh, and so that line right there, that's what got me thinking about, uh, this is my son, the beloved in whom I am well pleased. And in the gospel of John, the prologue to John ends with the line, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Or what it really says in the Greek is in the very bosom of the father, so close to the father that they are indistinguishable, basically. The love that Joyce has for Will reminds me so much of the love of God that will never give up, that will always be um, striving and pushing and and yearning for that closeness. Uh, and and I so Joyce is just this beautiful character. No matter how frazzled she gets or how destroyed her house is, which gets more and more destroyed <laughs> over as her mental state diminishes, her yeah, house gets even messier. Um, but she says, "Yeah, that I feel it in my heart. You have to trust me on this one." I think that it is Joyce's belief that Will is still alive that actually keeps him alive and and safe, if, if we can use the word safe, in the upside down for as long as he's there. Considering that we know from the scientists that the air is toxic in the upside down and you can't stay there for a long time. And yet somehow Will is able to be there for over a week. And it's, I think it's Joyce's love uh, and yeah, dogged determination and perseverance to bring him home. Absolutely. I mean, some of it's, so we know that he's good at hiding. So he hides in Castle Byers to the, the shadow version of it to avoid the dangerous creatures. But you're right. It's the, the very air is toxic there and other characters that go in do not survive. At the end of the season, we see that awful tree full of corpses. It's really gross. And, and we see that Barb has died. Um, and I'm sure she was beloved by her parents, but they didn't have the same fervent belief that Joyce does and not just a general love, like maybe the, that Karen Wheeler has for her children. Joyce has a very specific love. She, she loves her children differently and in different ways, but she knows them through and through. And that reminds me of, of the love that God has that Mm, there's not just this general love that goes out, but there's a specific love for each and every created being. And, and we are known intimately because of that love. Oh, I love that. Um, Specifically. Yeah, it's because as we're trying to make this parallel between Karen and Joyce, Karen does does love her children and she embraces them and she's there for them in her own way. But I think you're right. It, it's almost like a generic love. Or like not perform- performative seems like we're, we're denigrating her a little bit yeah, too much. But maybe yeah, but too it's, much, yeah. she doesn't she knows Nancy by the by we see that in season three. They have a really good heart to heart, but it takes that long mm-hmm. to get to know, to open up to Nancy. Um, and with Mike, she just I don't think she gets him at no, all. I don't think either of his parents understand Mike's nerdiness. Um but he also becomes a little jerk in the third season. I mean, yeah, so. he's definitely a little jerk in like almost all the all the seasons. Let's say I'm not Team Mike, but getting back to Joyce and Karen, um, you're, you're, I, I think you're you're onto something where we have that specific love where Joyce 
really knows her boys. She knows who they are and, and really celebrates who they are. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying with the drawings of Will the Wise, um, she Jonathan's understood- photography, like in a moment of despair, when they're trying to make up a missing poster, she's like saying to Jonathan, these are beautiful photos. Mm. Yeah. She, she, she appreciates them for who they are, uh, for their identities. Um, and, and not that Karen doesn't appreciate her children, but I don't think she has that specific detail of understanding them for who they are. They are her children, but that but she doesn't understand the wizard shooting fireballs like yeah. Joyce does because like, yeah. they look like cabbages, um, oh, that's right. which is just lovely. Right. Um, and, you know, and then so we have this put together Karen who comes over with the casserole um, and Joyce, who's completely frazzled at that point. And then she actually kicks Karen out uh, in a moment of like real, <laughs> real kind of standing, standing firm because she thinks that Will is about to contact her. And the quote that we, the quotation that we had in as their nerd canon quote happens right after she has had that conversation with Will using the Christmas tree lights where she's uh, sitting in the cupboard. Oh yeah. And holding right? the lights and that are glowing. holding the lights. And, and she talks to Will with those before she does the, the, the alphabet on the wall. And that's just, the, there's a beauty to that scene of her cradling the lights. This one sign of her son's presence. That's all she's got is just that these glowing Christmas lights. And that's what she's going to hold close. When we talk about the belief in their children that these parents have, the moment another adult enters the scene in the Wheeler's life, which is Papa or Dr. Brenner, he sits down at their table and... Um, he says to Karen, we want to help him, Mike. We want to help Mike. We will help him. I give you my word. But in order for me to do that, you have to trust me. Will you trust me? And Karen nods. Uh, and then later in the episode, um, Mrs. Wheeler is having a little bit of doubt about that. And she says, we should be out there looking for him. Mike. And Mr. Wheeler says, well, we have to trust them. This is our government. They're on our side. Yeah, of course. Right. Right. Uh, (laughs) And so we see the Wheelers kind of buying into the system, trusting other adults. Now, again, Mike hasn't been sharing anything. So I'm not saying that, you know, he and Nancy are off doing their own thing. But I wonder if that household hadn't uh, engendered a level of trust that Karen desires, but doesn't seem to be able to uh, affect. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Ted is looking for that either. So she doesn't have a, she doesn't have a willing partner in that. Yeah. He's sitting there reading the paper the whole time. Yeah. I mean, he's probably got a hard job, I'm sure. And he wants to just come home and fall asleep. It's not an ideal situation for family closeness. The sort of, you know, stay at home mom who's unfulfilled and the, the dad who comes home and falls asleep is a very familiar picture in a lot of, you know, fantasy or not fantasy fictional tropes and um it doesn't it's not the kind of family that they have to be as honest and open as the buyers are because they don't have the same stresses that they do um karen doesn't have to say hey nancy i need you to watch your brother because i have to go work and mm-hmm, right. keep food on the table um there's not that kind of humility maybe that the buyers have with one another the wheelers have that per, you know that suburban perfection the, 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 the picture of suburban perfection mm-hmm. right and they maintain it and it, they're able to. So speaking of Brenner, we have all of these moments in flashback from Eleven's perspective, seeing her horrible upbringing as a science experiment, not as a child, not as a little girl, as an experiment in a room with a bed and a stuffed animal. And that's it. It's that's just such it. a sterile way to grow up, not even having real clothes. Yeah, just a Having hospital Johnny. Shade. Yeah, hospital. Yeah, hospital gown, and then that weighted bathing suit for when she's in the deprivation tank. So very much not being treated like a child, and not really knowing anything beyond that. All she had, had she had her sister, eight, you know, who cared for her in a in a way that an older child can care for a younger child. But she's not receiving any affection or care from the employees, from Doctor Brenner, who she calls Papa, but it's not a father daughter relationship. It's it's what she perceives perhaps as a father-daughter relationship if she even knew what that was and craves it and he uses that craving for closeness as a way of controlling her you know just just a flicker of a smile when she shrinks uh when she collapses the coke can Mm -hmm. 
And then when she won't kill the cat, it's not a smile. It it is a, it's a, it's almost even a neutral face. I don't think you think he frowns. And that's when then she kills the guards when they're trying to throw her back in her room, and into he comes the, in into that oh. tiny. No, it's not even in the closet. Yeah, it's like a closet. And then he comes in and because she's unconscious at that point, he picks her up. But again, there is no affection there. There is only the desire to use and to to form and shape this weapon that he's creating. And she's soaking anything, any affection or any approval she can get up like a starved plant. You know, you see her gazing at him with loving eyes because she's so desperate for it. And all he gives her is this measured affection, not for her, but for her power. And even that scene of him holding her, it's very awkward. Like her arms like twisted around and and dangling. It looks like, you know, maybe a person who's more aware would have tried to adjust her so she would be comfortable. Well, I think if, if it had been an actual, if I were doing like, say my, if my daughter had fallen asleep Mm -hmm. on the couch, I would probably have picked her up by the armpits and and held her against my body with her head on my shoulder mm. instead of like kind in, of in front instead of, you. of instead of in front of me you know um with her arm dangling with her arm dangling because because and she would instinctively even if she's asleep she would instinctively kind of hug me in that mm-hmm. motion oh and brenner basically is carrying his a product his, his or, gun to, yeah. to back where she, she's supposed to go. And he's gazing at her again, not at her, but like into like her brain. Like he's looking down at her and I'm imagining marveling at the power that he's able to harness and control. Yeah. And it's all about control for him and whatever he says, it doesn't matter who he's talking to. It's about control. And then we juxtapose, we can juxtapose Brenner throughout the, the first season with Joyce in the second to last episode um, in the scene with the deprivation tank and 11. Mm-hmm. So just as Joyce has this deep faith that her son is still alive and, and her love for Will keeps him alive in the upside down, the, it's the moment she meets 11, there's this, it's not a transfer of love from Will to 11. Mm-hmm. It's like an expansion of Absolutely. Joyce's ability to, to care for somebody. And she just immediately in this beautiful maternal way takes Eleven in and just showers her with this affection and this care to the point where when she's in the deprivation tank, Joyce says, um, you're a very brave girl. You know that, don't you? Everything you're doing for my boy, thank you. Listen, I'm going to be there with you the whole time. And if it ever gets too scary in that place, you just let me know. I love that part because you see it is a brand new relationship. And yet she's able to care for this girl in a specific way. Um, you know, Stroking her hair as, as Elle floats in the tank. And, and telling her, you know, you're brave, that she needs that reassurance. I don't think Elle's ever been told that she's brave. So Joyce is able to thank her for her, her talent, not just to use it, but, but really taking it as a gift that it is. And, and knowing that this is a little girl in the end who might get scared and that Joyce is going to be there to protect her in as much as she's able to. Um, that's a, that is a beautiful moment. Eleven hears Joyce's voice echoing, don't be afraid. I'm right here with you. It's okay. You're safe. And just the that that closeness and that desire to protect runs completely counter to Brenner, who never really said anything besides, here's the guy you need to find, and I know you can do it. And imagine like the the fact that her voice is able to reach Elle in the tank when she's not supposed to be able to hear or see or feel anything. She's floating. She's got, you know, headphones on or or earmuffs and her eyes are shut. Um, The fact that Joyce's voice is able to reach into that space and reassure her, it might even be a memory that she's having. She's, you know, being wrapped in this, in this voice and this love that is so new to her, but is already deeply important and grounds her as she does this terrifying, you know, exploration, trying to find Will. And it might be that that because Eleven is going in to look for Will, she's actually getting a little bit of a an emanation of Joyce's love for Will. Ooh, I coming like into that. that. Coming into that space, and maybe when she says, "Don't be afraid, I'm here with you," it's both for Will and for Eleven in that moment. Nice. And then when when she comes out of the tank, Joyce grabs her and says, "I've got you. I've got you." You know, there's she hugs her right away. 
which again is nothing that had ever happened to Eleven before. Uh, so we have this beautiful relationship of of love, Joyce for her son Will, and then almost a spontaneous relationship of love with Eleven. Mm-hmm. And again, we are seeing the love of God through Joyce Byers's um, relationships and her that perseverance that she has to believe in these children. Um, so talk to me a little bit about Hopper as, as he grows into that experience as a father, because again, he had that loss in his own life. Yep. He's never able to actually be, you know, to, he's still a father, obviously. When, if you, if you lose a child, you don't cease being a parent, but he's not able to have his daughter with him and have her be alive and, and raise her in that way. So he has kind of this like latent parenthood that I think emerges throughout the series. You see him obviously have a lot of compassion and patience with Joyce. And at the very end of season one, Um, You know, there's that scene in the woods where Elle is going to pick up food that he's been leaving for her just in hopes that that she'll be taken care of. Um, And then later, so they have this moment face to face in the woods. And later in season two, we see the process of her living with him, of him adopting her, taking her out to this cabin in the woods, fixing it up. They have that wonderful scene where he's he's playing that song he really likes. uh, Don't mess around with Jim. I forget. It's a a very funny song. Um, so, you know, he takes her in and cares for her, clothes her. And he says, I think in that season, he's like, I, I feed, I teach, I protect. Oh, I got those out of order. I feed, I protect, I teach. Um, so, so he's the one who's teaching her how the world works. He's giving her more vocabulary, teaching her how to tell time, all these things that I guess no one ever bothered to teach her in the lab. Well, she was a weapon. She wasn't a person. She was a weapon. Yeah. She wasn't actually a child um, and trying to keep her safe. And sure he messes, you know, he might mess up. He's in between a rock and a hard place with trying to keep her safe because yeah. the government's still looking for her. So she's still a bit of a prisoner. She, well, is she, 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 is a, she says that she said she compares him to Papa later on in, in that season. Ouch. Um, which is uh, awful to say, but he, he doesn't know what else to do. And I think in season three, you see them uh, living in a little bit more of a stable place. And then the, the parenting moves on to the normal teenage things like my daughter has a boyfriend and I don't like it. Um, and one of the most visible symbols of his relationship with his daughters is these blue hair ties. And I didn't see this, this is the internet. So thank you internet for pointing this out in the flashbacks with Hopper's daughter, you see her when she's, Sarah, when she's playing in the park, she's got these cute little blonde pigtail puffs and they've got little blue hair ties. And that's when she starts having the first coughs that lead to you realizing that she's very ill. When she's in the hospital and her head has been shaved, um, Hopper's wearing those blue hair ties on his wrist. Because obviously Sarah can't wear them anymore. She doesn't have any hair. So he's holding on to them. After she dies, you see him wearing it again. And then in the show, he gives them to, he gives these little blue hair ties to Eleven. And you see her wearing them um, at the snowball, at the dance that she does um, when she goes out with Mike. Even though she's got new clothes and her hair looks a little different, she's carrying on this visible sign of Hopper's love for her. Um, and I think oh, that's nice. He, he has that. a sort that's of good. general love for her at first, and it becomes more specific over time as he realizes, you know, what she needs and how, she, you know, they need to live. And I think our opening, not our nerd quote, but our um, Hogwarts hobbits and triple decker ego extravaganzas, he's able to speak her language. And you see that as they live together. It's halting and it and it and it's very real that it takes them a long time to figure out what it, it, it is to live together and to be a family. And there's the halfway happy of compromise. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they mess it up. Like he, he skips out on Halloween night and she's mad at him and has every right to be. And then his protective, I think his love comes out in protectiveness just mm-hmm. throughout the series. That's his love language, as as it were, is protectiveness. <laughs> Fierce right? over protectiveness. Yeah. For, for, for really everybody um, that comes into his orbit that, that, that he loves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they go down to shut the gate at the end of season two. Yeah. 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 And then, so, so what happens in that moment? Cause I didn't, I didn't rewatch this part. So in, in that the kind of denouement of season two is the gate to the upside down needs to be shut. And the only person who can do it is 11 and Hopper and they have to like fight their way to get down to the basement of the lab in order to shut it. So he's not providing any like magical telepathic powers in that moment. He's just protecting his daughter in order to get her 
to the place where she can do her job. And I think he obviously doesn't like putting her in danger. Um, and in season three, they, he will say, you know, stay out of danger. I'm going to go take care of it because in that case, they didn't need her powers. But in season two, they need her specific powers and he's able to keep her alive, keep her safe long enough to go down into the basement, uh, ride on that like creepy elevator into the rift and yeah. help her as she shuts it. He can't do anything at the moment when she's placing all she's got at this gate in order to close it. She starts like floating and her she's screaming and her mouth is bleeding, her nose is bleeding. And all he can do is just be there alongside her. Mm-hmm. And I think that shows another moment of growth where he recognizes she has a very special talent and She's volunteering to use it for the sake of all of them, and he's going to support her as she does it. And I think that's another facet of the love of God that we can pull out here as well, where where it's that Hopper goes with Eleven and is present with her, and in a in a role of the supportive, um, in just a support in this supportive mm-hmm. role, um, and while Eleven is, you know, doing her thing. He is there. He is. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, when we talk about God's presence, we are, we, we will, will often say that God is, is ever present and is so present that it's hard to recognize and hard to notice that presence because of, of how constant it is, which is why it's, um, you know, when you, you talked earlier about, about God's love being specific and, and actually is what creates that identity within us, that beloved identity inside of us. Part of that specificity is the way that we experience God's presence. And, and one of the ways that we grow as followers of Jesus or a follower of any religion that believes in God has to do with how do we understand how God is present in our lives? And then how are we going to use that understanding to help other people find that presence in their lives. Today on the podcast, we're talking chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Here's a quick recap. Chapter 8, Flight of the Fat Lady. Classes continue and Quidditch begins again, bringing about an almost maniacal level of energy from Team Captain Oliver Wood. A reprieve is on the horizon as Halloween approaches, a trip to Hogsmeade. Harry, without his permission form, is stuck inside the castle, but has a pleasant cup of tea with Lupin, who reveals that he didn't allow Harry to tackle the boggard because he assumed it would take the shape of Voldemort. It wouldn't, Harry confides. It would become a Dementor which Lupin says means Harry's worst fear is fear. Snape drops off a potion for Lupin to take, which Harry finds suspicious. That night after the sumptuous Halloween feast, the Gryffindors head up to their tower to find the fat lady gone, her portrait slashed. Peeves, in a moment of delicious schadenfreude, reveals that the damage was done by none other than Sirius Black. Chapter 9, Grim Defeat. All the students gather for an impromptu sleepover in the Great Hall. Snape voices his concerns about someone possibly helping Black to enter the castle, but Dumbledore reassures him. The next few days are filled with rumors and speculation about how Sirius Black managed to enter the castle. Lupin is absent from class and Snape is subbing, a terrible staffing choice by Dumbledore as he immediately skips ahead in the syllabus to werewolves. The match with Hufflepuff arrives on a stormy, windy day. And as Harry follows Hufflepuff seeker Cedric Diggory into a dive for the snitch, he feels the sinking cold of the Dementor's approach and a shrill voice begging for mercy. Slipping from his broom, he passes out. Harry wakes up in the hospital wing, bruised but alive. Good thing Dumbledore cast Featherfall on him and the ground was so soft. The same could not be said for his faithful Nimbus 2000, which was whomped by the Whomping Willow and lies in splinters. Chapter 10, The Marauder's Map. Harry convalesces all weekend and ruminates on the voice he heard, his mother's voice in the last moments of her life before being murdered by Voldemort. Lupin is back and agrees to give Harry anti-dementor lessons after the holidays. On the day of the next Hogsmeade trip, Harry is seized by the Weasley twins who give him a map of Hogwarts that magically shows the location of everyone. There are even secret tunnels, one which leads directly to Hogsmeade. 
Harry eagerly joins his friends there, and as the trio sits sipping butterbeer at the pub, they overhear the teachers and Cornelius Fudge discussing Sirius Black. Not only did he murder innocent people, including his old school friend Peter Pettigrew, but he was the reason the Potters were murdered. He was James's best friend, Harry's godfather. And in revealing the Potters' location to Voldemort, he broke the charm that kept them safe. Just one brief aside, if the Weasley twins had a map for all their years in Hogwarts that revealed the locations of everybody, including people who are in animal form, were they never concerned about the person sleeping in their little brother's bed? Yeah, that's something I've always wondered that. I was about to ask you the same question. And is that never discussed never, like, anywhere? It's no, just it's just, just a plot hole. OK, it's just, just a plot hole. So we just have to let it go. I guess we have to wonder, like, would they be looking at the Gryffindor Tower if they're looking for secret entrances and, like, people walking around the secret entrances? Probably not. Yeah, I don't but you'd know. you think they get bored. <clears throat> well, you think it, it eventually Lupin figures it out, so he does see it, but... Yeah, huh, okay, it's just yeah. a little weird. It like, is weird. It is super weird. There's a dead man in your little brother's bed. Yeah, so have you always been wondering that? Like, did that, when you first read this book, was no. that something that, that was a weird plot hole for you? Or did that happen later on when you were reading internet forums and all that I stuff? I remember. Because I don't think I thought about it until yeah. much, much later. What did you have on your mind for these chapters? Well, let's talk a little bit about fear. Oh, yeah, fear is very present with, in these with chapters. With and Harry. Yeah. So the Dementor, seeing a Dementor as a, a boggart turned into a Dementor basically means that you are afraid of fear fear you know very wise um, very wise as and david uh, thulis says in the movie oh, david thulis so, so you know fdr said the only thing to fear is fear itself in the midst of the great depression and all of this mm -hmm. stuff it also makes me think of that wonderful line from uh dune it's the benny Gesserit litany against fear um and I actually used this in a sermon once. Oh, go for it. Share it with us. <laughs> I'm not going to share the sermon. I just, I no, used no, this. No, share the, share oh. the, the litany. <laughs> uh, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear is, has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. And isn't that death. just what like summoning a Patronus is like? I was, yeah, I was Let wondering. Let the fear pass over you and you find yourself. All you see is yourself, the protector that you've summoned. And that's what Harry wants to learn. Yeah, he doesn't know that yet. We're going to learn that soon. Mm -hmm. But there's something about fear being the mind killer. You know, it's like uh, we it's a fight or flight thing, right? When we're afraid, we, we have that evolutionary response of fight, flight, or freeze. We go into our animal brain. And, and so what, what the Bene Gesserit and Dune are trying to, trying to do with this litany is to keep themselves in their right state of mind, even when they're afraid. And, you know, people will say that, <clears throat> excuse me, bravery doesn't mean not being afraid. It means doing something even when you are afraid. Can a man be afraid and brave at the same time? Said Bran to Ned Stark. Of course, my son, that is the only time a man can be brave. Wow. Did you just have that off the top of your head or are you reading that? I mean, that? I probably paraphrased it, but yeah. That's <laughs> yes. a main plot point and theory in, in, in theme of Game of Thrones. That a person can only be brave when they are afraid. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Um, and so with Harry here, we're going to learn... The, when we learn the Patronus charm and then Harry casts it, he is casting it through his fear. Mm -hmm. And in the end, he casts it because he knows he's already cast it, which is interesting, which we'll get to. <laughs> time, time travel. We, we will wild. get to later. Yeah. Um, but uh, when we think about fear, I can I can feel that paralysis, you know, when when right now when we're thinking about, well, what do we do about school, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, you know, we second guess ourselves a lot about what is best for our children. What, what should we be doing in our society? And there's so much fear around that. It makes us, it really can paralyze us. Um, and then the first letter of John, it has that famous line in it that says, um, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. So 
so so love is the antidote for fear love is the opposite of fear in this particular instance and the patronuses throughout the series are very much a loving thing which we'll we can talk about that next time because i think that's when we're going to get the learn about patronuses but of course way in the future isn't the love isn't snape's patronus about his love for Harry's mom or right? his like lifelong obsession, well, but maybe whatever. Obsession. I, we can, we <laughs> can debate is, that. James is Patro- James's form and being a, a complimentary figure to Lily's also shows their love and their compatibility. Mm, right. The, oh yeah. The yeah sure. The doe and the stag. But isn't it so appropriate for Harry, a Gryffindor who bright, who prides themselves on their courage that his number one fear is fear itself. And as a person who responds so instinctually, we see this throughout the books that he's the one who will yank his friends out of danger, who will act first. For the fight, flight, or freeze, he never, he rarely ever freezes except the Dementors make him freeze. He wants to conquer that. He will respond fighting, as it not as in like um, active com- you know, combat necessarily, but he'll, he'll cast defensive charms. He'll use his Expelliarmus or his Patronus later on. Um, he will not, he won't run away. He won't freeze. He will just fight in that way. Um, and so I can imagine given all of that, given how responsive and instinctual and his, how good his gut is being frozen by fear is the absolute, just most frustrating, um, demoralizing thing he can be. And he would fear it. And I wonder if he, does he fear the Dementors because they're making him hear the worst moment of his life or is he afraid of them because of what you just said? And I think it, mm. I actually think it's more right. the second one because yeah, later in the powerless. book, he actually wants to hear the Dementors right? So because he, he, he wants to have that connection. Oh, that's right? sad. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but he doesn't like being paralyzed. No, right, right. We, we, so we'll get to the point where, where he, you know, sends the Patronus at Malfoy. Oh, right? my gosh. Okay, <laughs> so, but for now, he actually this. meets real Dementors at a Quidditch match, which is just like terrible and, and, and falls off his broom. And that, I think it's also the first time he loses a Quidditch match ever that he specifically is involved in a losing match. And that he takes really deeply to heart, I think, because, you know, he feels like he's failed and that causes a lot of humility, not humility humiliation in him, um, a lot of shame. The Dementors make him feel shame. He's a, he's shame, ashamed of being afraid. And he says, everyone said the Dementors were horrible, but no one else collapsed every time they went near one. No one else heard echoes in their, in their head of their dying parents. He says, he asks, why do they affect me like that? Am I just... A coward, yeah, horrible and, person, and, weak. And weak, and Lupin... Um, finishes the thought. It, it has nothing to do with weakness. The Dementors affect you worse than others because there are horrors in your past that others don't have. Lupin has a very concrete reason. Mm-hmm. It's basically that Harry has some, you know, post-traumatic stress. True, true heart. Right? It's a horror in his past um, that that are coming up, that are churning up inside of him when they when he sees the Dementors. It has nothing to do with weakness. You know, I'm wondering about the memories he hears. So it makes him, they're supposed to bring back the worst memories a person has. And he was an infant when his parents died. Um, He was just like over, just barely over a year old. And I wonder, he's had life or death threat. He's had life-threatening situations since then. First year and second year, he's come face to face with Voldemort or a version of him. He's tasted bone deep, almost life-ending fear, but he's always had some form of agency. I wonder if being an infant, completely at the mercy of his parents who die for him and then of Voldemort, um, if that's really the worst experience he's ever had because he had that bone deep life-threatening fear and he was unable to do anything about it because he was a baby. So what you're, so what I hear you saying is that Harry's deepest fear is actually, we were talking about freezing before, Mm. is actually a loss of agency that Harry and it, and it, is, is it is it a is it a loss of control or is it just a loss of like options the loss of the ability to choose so really it's a, about freedom that harry that the thing that he fears is not being able to affect a situation i think so yeah cuz he's so he takes things into his own hands so often almost I mean, to the detrimental point in the case of book 5 with sirius um he reacts and he approaches situations and and being a baby this was a defining moment in his life, truly, as we find out, the worst moment of his life. And, and sure, like losing his parents is, is bad enough, but to be completely helpless 
Um, I might be looking way too deeply into that. You know, he was a baby, but no, it's a good it plot sense. device yeah. to learn more about what happened um, and kind of kicks off, you know, continues this kind of almost morbid curiosity he's had about learning about his parents. Which continues throughout the the series. Yeah. But I, I love when when Lupin talks to him about about the Dementors and says, you're not weak. It's not because you're, you know, weaker than these other people you've had worse fears. I think it helps Harry's shame. It's, it, it's seen, he's kind of lifting up that shame and opening it up. Um, I'm thinking of Brene Brown and, and sort of like, you know, not letting shame control you, but taking someone you trust and sharing it with them, which dissipates the power it has over you. This is very much a moment of Harry's shame and humiliation being shared with a trusted figure with the best teacher ever and having compassion for him. So a couple of more thoughts mm. first, and I don't want to go into wizard and justice. Oh man. Again, but like it's we did real, last week, yeah. but it's there again in this set, these set of chapters. The ministry has a SWAT team. Oh yeah. The hit wizards. Hit, hit wizards. <laughs> They're hit called wizards. hit wizards. Trained hit wizards. What is that about? What are they? This, this is a SWAT take, team. That's what it is. You the, think it's the, like a special branch of the R's? Must be. It must be. I would yeah. hope so. Because I don't think we have the word. Do we have the word or yet? Or is Not that coming yet. book I think four? You get it in four? Yeah, because yeah. of, of 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 um, Moody. So hit wizards. Hit wizards. I, I don't have anything to say about them. Oh, I just, just want to say exist. that they exist. They they the wizard the wizard. Uh, you know. But it's interesting though. Again, British. I I don't really know about the British law enforcement system and, and how if it has been militarized like the american Much one has less so they're they do not have a lot of them do not have guns i believe yeah but but we have you know like the militarization of the police in the united states is insane over the course of the last 30 years and harry potter was written during that period so having hit wizards you know maybe maybe these are more like james bond style wizards like you know, they have a license to kill. They can actually cast a vodka cadaver perhaps and not be thrown or, in Azkaban Or hit it. as in like stun, you know, I think I've seen them do a lot of stunning, like when they show up in the fourth, when all those ministry wizards show up in the fourth book because I think Harry cast the sky, what's it called? <laughs> the dark mark. They just cast stunning spells. Wars Mordra. Well, you just said that. I didn't say that. So now they're going to come after you. Um, I don't have a lot of hope. I mean, I don't have a lot of hope in the ministry at all, given like know, they made right? Dalish. Dalish is a terrible horror. If he was a hit wizard, he would probably accidentally kill his friends. Yeah, I'm pretty sure hit in this sense is like Hitman. Probably. <laughs> really oh, yeah, probably. So the, the conversation, you know, from a narrative standpoint, as a writer, I appreciate J.K. Rowling's uh, uh, um, desire to 100% of the time except for like opening chapters in a couple of the books be with Harry that the limited third person perspective is always maintained again again except for sort of prologue chapters in a couple of the books but it's almost always, so when we have a conversation where we need this info dump to, to understand the backstory around Pettigrew and, and Sirius Black it's a little ham-fisted in that they're basically behind a Christmas tree listening to these four people tell a story that they base the only reason that they're telling the story is because Madame Rismerta didn't know it yet. Yep. As you and I both know, Bob. Let's yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a little, but we need the information to understand the story. I get it. It just it shows the the limitations of limited third person perspective. That there wasn't another way to share these details, or at least this was the way that was designed, you know, designated as the best way. And it also shows that you can have a set of, you know, quote unquote facts and come to all of the wrong conclusions because you didn't try hard enough to come to the truth of it. Right. Having that one piece of misinformation that Sirius was the secret keeper instead of, as we later find out, it being Pettigrew is just going to cause this kind of domino effect of assumptions and, um, judgments on his character. I mean, Hagrid even says like, I, you know, I found Sirius at the site at, in Godric's hollow when he was getting Harry out of the ruins and Sirius wants, wants him to give Harry to, to him as his godfather. And, and Hagrid's like, I I comforted the murdering traitor and I should have ripped him limb from limb. Um, and the reason he gave me his motorbike is not, which in reality was to keep Harry the safest, um, by giving Hagrid a better method of transportation. But Hagrid assumed in this moment under misunderstandings 
that he gave it, he gave them the motorbike because he doesn't need it anymore. He's on the run. The motorbike was too noticeable. Yeah. So it, it creates all these and seeing all these characters have to later do a one, not all of the characters, but some of them have to do a 180 and say, oh, Sirius is actually a good guy. It's all based on this one piece of misinformation. As you said, the domino effect here of people, we, we talked about last time of the fact that he doesn't get a trial. He just gets thrown into Azkaban. Mm-hmm. It's like they all, they all know what happened. Um, Fudge is going to tell the story with some little details from the other characters. And they don't even try to um, interrogate the decisions that were made. Nobody cast Priori and Cantatum on Sirius's wand. Oh, yeah. Which, again, doesn't exist yet because that's in book four. <laughs> uh, and while Rowling had the, you know, the broad strokes of the story from the beginning, mm-hmm. she didn't have There's that you could, you could cast a spell on a, spell on a wand to figure out what it had just cast. Because if it... If they had done that, they would have known that his wand didn't <laughs> didn't cause the spell that blew up the street. And they, they would have seen his laughter not as like the maniacal laughing of a madman, but as like truly out of options, desperate, maybe even weeping. Yeah, it, it's 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 just a you know a, a break of, of sanity moment mm-hmm. for Sirius. And even even his um, ability to remain sane in Azkaban, if you think he's bad, you think he's the bad guy. You would say that as well. Well, he's not even getting the punishment he deserves. He's able to, he's so twisted that the mentors can't even affect him. Yeah, he's a sociopath. He has no emotions for them to, to feed so, on. When yep. in fact, it's because he knows he's innocent, which isn't a happy thought. It's just one that keeps him going. So Fudge in this scene will share about how, you know, he even asked for the newspaper um, to do the crossword, he says, but actually it's to, to look at the picture of the rat on the boy's shoulder. Good for you, Fudge. You did something well for once. I'm glad that he gave him the newspaper. You know, he could have been a jerk and said, no crossword for you. Yeah, because then he would have had to go back to the Wheeler's house to give it to Ted Wheeler to read. Because <laughs> that's no, all Ted's he does Ted's got one section, Sirius gets the other section. You got to split up the sections. Right, right. That's yeah, what Sirius I can from, have the sports. <laughs> the that's sports what I remember section. from when the, uh, in, the paper was actually in a paper form and not on my phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Long ago. Indeed. Right. So what are we doing next time? Next time on the podcast, we'll be reading chapters 11, 12, and 13 of Prisoner of Azkaban. That's The Firebolt, The Patronus, and Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at Nerdy Christians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. And I have a new website coming soon. I will Ooh. let you know uh, when it launches. Uh, check out Seven of Shadow, the final volume of my fantasy series, The Shields of Sutheril, on Amazon. You can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. And now, may you be blessed with the heart of a Wheeler, the joy of a Henderson, the mind of a Sinclair, the protectiveness of a Harrington, the loyalty of a Mayfield, the bravery of a newbie, the perseverance of a hopper, and the faith of a buyers. May God strengthen you and your family, blood or chosen, as you tackle the demogorgons and the mind flayers and the changes and chances of this life. Amen.